Okay, so they got this whole thing wrong. Fat Luther is the okay. only way to go, okay? What movie am I watching? Forget the shooting the cop in the face. Anybody who picks Skinny Luther, I don't think we're on the same planet, okay? Because a house is not a home. Um, other side of the world. Uh, Make me a believer Luther is the only Luther that exists. Show to Luther is dead to me. Okay. I don't even know who that is. <laughs> I bet you don't even know what the fuck I'm talking about. Do you? I like that. I like that song. Uh, Dance with my father again. That's skinny Luther. So you're out of this conversation. <laughs> That's show to Luther. We don't fuck with him. Welcome to Black and White Movies. I'm Jared and... I'm Danielle. This is a podcast where we discuss two movies that are thematically bonded to one another or have some other connective tissue that warrants examination. And today we are going to talk about 1967's Bonnie and Clyde and 2019's Queen and Slim. Danielle, do you want to tell us a... Uh, your own original synopsis for Queen and Slim? Why'd you have to say my own original synopsis? Because that's just the format of which we uh, do things. Yes. Um, Queen and Slim was a movie about a date gone wrong. And that, okay. That's your synopsis? Yeah, because that's... Oh, you're right. We'll, we'll, date talk gone about, wrong. we'll actually we'll talk it about it because that is a part of what I want to talk about with that movie. Excellent. So uh, to intro Bonnie and Clyde, uh, Bonnie and Clyde is kind of a retelling of the Depression era true crime saga of Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow. It takes liberties with the real life stories as well as with the cinematic conventions. Uh, this film was a milestone influenced by the French New Wave. It arrived at the beginning of the Hollywood trend towards counterculture, exploitation and auteur driven movies. So we're gonna get into both these movies and uh, talk about them both. I would like to start this by kind of doing a little bit different than we did before. Kind of talking about both movies mixed in. Sure. So I want to start with Bonnie and Clyde. The younger generation may not realize that that is actually, those were real people. Yes. Um, and so they've been glamorized. So to the point where you think that they are folklore. Jesse James, he, he had heroes from back in the Westerns and um, by, uh, Clyde in particular, and he wanted to be an outlaw, you know, and he came up during an era where, you know, there was such vast inequality, kind of like we are today. Queen and Slim, like I said, is just a tender date gone wrong. Yes. Yeah. And um, it's people with their backs up against the wall. It's either fight or flight, right? So those are the kind of, the, like just starting out as a blanket, I think that um, I wanted to cross, uh, cross those two worlds and, and give it, qualify it a little bit from my perspective. And that's the biggest difference between Bonnie and Clyde and Queen and Slim is Bonnie and Clyde, they start their journey gleefully murderous and um, robbing, not murderous, but as robbers, bank robbers, and they're excited and criminals. they almost have like a criminals. They ha almost have like a sexual excitement for criminality. Whereas Queen and Slim are totally reluctant criminals. They're running from the law because of circumstances that put them there. In self-defense, they kill a racist cop. Right. Or and I would love to say that this is a spoiler alert, but it's not because the trailer 
gave it away literally yes. from the time the movie was announced <laughs> that that is the theme of the movie. What do you think about that? So many movies tend to give away all of the plot in trailers yeah. to where you get there. You're like, okay, what, what, what was, <laughs> why did I watch this again? Trailers generally annoy me. I try my best to avoid them. Uh, if I know I want to see a movie, I don't want to see a trailer. I just want to go in and see the movie. Well, how would you know you want to see a movie if you didn't see the trailer? Because um, you can always judge a book by its cover. And honestly, you can't. honestly sometimes just a poster or a director or a writer or an actor in there tells me I know I want to see the movie. Okay. So you're going based on who's in it and who did it. Right. And so what, the, what the... What the log line is yes. as opposed yes. to okay what what you saw in the trailer for instance with queen and slim just the posters alone are intriguing enough the way they designed it that i probably would have wanted to see it just based on the posters i think with queen and slim the poster was super badass and i think that that's probably the closest thing related to bonnie and clyde that movie actually is they exactly they market it almost like queen and slim are these cool they're like they are a bonnie and clyde who are gleefully running from the law and do engaging in criminality but really their journey takes them to kind of become that and they end up with their cool outfits and cool car almost by accident just circumstances whereas bonnie and clyde were chasing that from the beginning let's dress like gangsters let's steal cool cars yeah i think i want to kind of separate the the real people of Bonnie and Clyde from the movie because glamorizing and the, the Hollywoodization, if you would, yeah. of Bonnie and Clyde is totally different from the real people. So I want to look at them from the movie perspective, not from the real oh, for sure. people Let, that they were because they were fucking murderous uh, gangsters, right? Yes, let's and just pretend they're just movie characters. Let's pretend for the sake of this conversation yeah. totally that they're movie characters because otherwise... You, you know, it's kind of not fair, right? So if I'm if I'm looking at it in terms of movie characters, Bonnie and Clyde, which I will say that what I didn't know, I did not know that there was a whole gang of people. <laughs> so it's I'm not like, just Bonnie and Clyde. It's, it's not Bonnie just Bonnie and Clyde. And Clyde. And I had no CW idea. CW and I had no his brother idea. and yeah. Did you know that? Uh, I I've seen this movie before, but you kind of forget over time that it's you picture just the pair Bonnie and Clyde yeah I had never seen this movie before yeah. um and you know it was interesting to me that I guess I thought that they were a little bit more successful than they were as yeah. as criminals other than <laughs> gay, other bank than, robbers they both seem really good with a gun but they're actually bad criminals like they don't plot their crimes well they're just kind of like hey it'd be cool to run into this bank right now and rip them off and they tell everywhere they go they tell everyone like hey uh, I'm, I'm a bank robber. this is bonnie and i'm clyde and we're bank robbers so like criminally speaking like the only reason they were successful at all is this was an era where there wasn't phones or internet and the cops were awful well, not only that, they were totally at home. So it's not like they, I mean, they went to Oklahoma or, you know what I mean? Yes. They crossed state lines a couple of times, but they seemed to keep coming back to Texas, which was the stupidest thing I could ever think of. Well, it made me really want to be a criminal in that era because it seems, number one, it seems so easy to steal a car. You just um, kind of hop in and start it. <laughs> and right? all the cars, like, rule. And then, like, you can just walk into a bank and be like, Give me your money. Hey, give me all this. And 
So it's really easy to be a criminal then. I think everyone, like there shouldn't have been so many uh, Dust Bowl depression people. Right. Well, um, luckily, I guess at that time, uh, not not to mention the fact that um, there are absolutely no other people. <laughs> there are no people of color. <laughs> Bonnie and Clyde? Huh? Sure there were. No, they might not have had dialogue in the movie, but they were there. No, that I'm talking about just in terms of differentiating mm. between people. So you just see a whole bunch of white people there. They're just people, right? So it's not like you stood out like a sore thumb in the air so you can get away with more. You can kind of hide in plain sight. Yes, um, gotcha. As opposed to being in a mixture of people like we are here in this melting pot. You couldn't mistake Bonnie and Clyde wherever they go, though, because for one, again, they're telling everyone who they are and they're, they're flashing everywhere they go. Well, clearly that's because of they were inspired by the West. Yes. Right. Yeah. That's a thing. Uh, you got Billy the Kid or, you know, Doc Holliday or whoever they wanted to have that or <laughs> Al Capone. I'm losing my errors. I have no idea. I think what this is, in, it's in the, it, this is in regions, the, too. No, no, no. I'm just saying in terms of their infamy. I don't know their inspirations because this was uh, the Depression era, yeah. I assume. So I'm 1930s. just saying like people having their interest in being famous or infamous mm -hmm. um, is more important than anything. And that was their goal was to be remembered. That was his only goal is he was going to be a footnote <laughs> with, with nothing. There was going to be no trace of him in his lifetime. And that's common in these movies, right? They're both about legacy. Bonnie and Clyde wanted to be remembered. And uh, we come to realize Queen and Slim, I think, what does she say to him? I, I already am your legacy. You are my um, legacy. And that's what was important. And then that's why the, the, the book end at the end of Queen and Slim, where kids are carrying it on and they're putting up murals of them. That's kind of the point. Like they went out in a blaze of fire, but they're passing on a legacy to inspire others. As far as Quentin Slim goes, it was a very entertaining movie to watch on the journey. I choose to, I think I've said this plenty of times before, but it is really hard for me to critique other filmmakers and their style that's new. Like I could critique the hell out of Bonnie and Clyde, it was 1967, I could make fun of it, I could, you know, I could say all kind of things, but yes. uh, time and place. But for something as current as Colleen and Slim, I want people to give it their own thoughts. And even when I saw it, I had to take, I've taken time since I've seen it yeah. to digest it. And I think that when I think about it, I can more accurately say what I cared for and what I didn't. What I cared for, and I, I always have to see things through my son's eyes because I'm probably a little bit more jaded or, you know what I'm saying, experienced in the world a little bit more. So I, you know, I could see all the flaws, probably a fatalist in that way. But I can also see where a movie like this is inspirational to a younger generation. So when I saw it, I was like, how come they didn't embrace like, okay, we're criminals now, fuck it. Let's just be criminals, right? Let's, <laughs> you know, all their whole goal was to get out of America, right? Yes. And so to me, that's great, but 
you're kind of go bumbling about it. It's one of those things where it was like, no, you're not a criminal mastermind. You're not criminals at all. She's a lawyer. He's a Costco checkout person. <laughs> like you're never bringing any of your world experience. She probably does a little bit more than he does, but they never. She's a lawyer. Yeah. You know, bring out like their superpowers. Like, oh yeah, you know, I have this in my pocket. You don't think he looked slim, looked really cool on a horse? You can put the insert crickets here. <laughs> first, first of <laughs> all, I keep calling them Queen and Slim, but we don't actually know who is Queen and who is Slim. They never say their names in the movie. Until the end, you learn their real names, which I've already forgotten what they are. They were very forgettable, right? And I wonder, again, we go back to this Bonnie and Clyde thing, right? So I think thematically they wanted it to be a Bonnie and Clyde and wanted to read like that but we're not brave enough to go for it. So Well, I think the the differences between them highlight why each movie is unique though. Like I do disagree with you a little. I think as they went on Queen and Slim, they they wouldn't admit to it, but they start feeling cool. Like they seem like coinciding with their romance blossoming. They like when they're in the club dancing they're they're feeling themselves and acting cool when they're in the new like velour and leopard print clothes and in the awesome car um they i think they're clearly feeling feeling cool they're not enjoying criminality and living it up to bonnie and clyde levels but i think what the filmmaker was saying it wouldn't fit if they just started robin for the sake of it i understand that part but that goes back to form over substance for mm -hmm. me. And it was beautiful. Like the, the storytelling was, was wonderful um, in terms of visually. I was impressed, I loved it. I was there for the ride. Story-wise, I think it left something to be desired. It was kind of like anticlimactic to me for the type of story it was. I really enjoyed the journey of the character's love trajectory. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I appreciated that. But I think that could have been told, like it just didn't seem like it knew what kind of story it wanted to be. They weren't horny at first sight like Bonnie and Clyde were. Right. Like they had to grow into that horniness. And there was even a point in the like, uh, near the half hour mark, I'm like, are, are, are they going to start feeling each other? Because they're still combative. But I get what you're saying. I think this movie it was is is not thematically subtle and it's almost goes back to the line slim says to queen he says something like why do black people always have to be excellent and i think in the film they had to highlight oh he doesn't drink he doesn't smoke because if he did do those things when he shoots the cop then they don't have that le leverage in the film of saying like well, it was just the circumstance and he's this excellent person. What if he did have drugs in his shoebox, in a shoebox in his trunks? You know, it doesn't make that point as strong as maybe the, the filmmakers wanted to, or it's less, it would be more subtle if. Do you know what he meant by that? Do you, do you, I mean, I. Of why do black people always have to be excellent? By that. Yeah. My take on it is, and, and we've come across this in other movies we've looked at already is is that if you are if you do lead with your flaws or have your flaws out there then you're going to be judged solely on that or people are already looking at you and projecting those thoughts on you like you're already like when the cop pulls him over 
he assumes they're drunk or high or something because he pulled over two black people. So if you are a person who enjoys a drink or a smoke now and then, and people are not going to cut you any slack. Whereas, hey, if you're Bonnie and Clyde, you can drink and party and all that, and you're you're still your white privilege is still going to let you skate through where cops are going to give you the benefit of a doubt. Yeah, absolutely. Though all those things are correct. Uh, he pulled them over because they swerved. Mm -hmm. So. Clearly a cop sees a swerve that's, you know, ding, ding, ding. Reason enough for me. Mm -hmm. And you happen to be black in the car? Oh, okay, so yeah, for sure. But I think what people don't understand about that comment that are, aren't black or don't live in, in, this, in this tone, this skin tone sometimes, is the fact, it, it, you know who said it best? Chris Rock. He said that I live next to Mary J. Blige, this is, this is, this is, but my, my direct neighbor is a dentist, right? Um, he has to be the best of the best in order to live in his neighborhood. So there's no black dentist living next door to Chris Rock or Mary J. Blige or whoever, mm. right? You just have to be white. So unfortunately in this country, because of so many oppressive things, like we all have the same things. You have a phone, I have mm -hmm. a phone. You have a, a house, I have a house. I don't own mine, you own yours. Oh, that's where big, yeah. we, we diverge, yeah. right? And so when he says, why do black folks always have to be excellent? It's more so the expectation that you have to be striving towards this impenetrable goal sometimes mm -hmm. you know I can't just be a Costco worker right. <laughs> and and be looking on a tender day you know there's a perception that in order to even have time for to and she she treated him like that from the beginning yeah, in that diner scene right like, like he was a scrub like, um, or whatever yes. right yeah. like you you know she kind of like shamed him like oh you just look like sad like a puppy and this and she was, was the only bitch place she could afford and right mm -hmm. and he was like no it was black owned like you know what i'm saying he had substance yeah. um and she automatically kind of chopped him up to that and that's a real that was some real shit like that was that was actually fascinating as so i said there relationship was the most fascinating thing about it. I think it got folded into this Bonnie and Clyde thing mm -hmm. because sometimes as writers, uh, no shade to Lena Waithe, I think she's a wonderful writer, but I think sometimes your experience hasn't caught up to your idea or to the idea. It's a unique movie and I can see how they probably had to pitch it as the black Bonnie and Clyde just to sell it. But I, was, I had no problem when I was watching it, like parsing them apart and seeing where they diverged. And I think this movie's strength lies in where it's different, but there's enough comparables between the two that oh, I think, I think yeah. they should kind of proudly sit on the shelf next to each other. They achieve different outcomes while having some similar DNA. I don't think there was anything wrong with the movie. I just think that the expectation of it being a Bonnie and Clyde, it kind of shows where, just like we talked about with the Joker, yes. right? You can't really go over that edge and be black at the same time. It would be, you're saying it would be nice to, why not have a black movie where you can enjoy the criminality and have fun with it? Absolutely. Like white people were invited to with Bonnie and Clyde. Absolutely. 
And a lot of it, I agree with you. And it, that's one of the differences of this movie's highlighted by that, is that Bonnie and Clyde, although they w didn't really articulate it that well, they were going after the banks in the Depression era. So the common person can be like, yeah, rah, rah, we're all poor, go after the banks. With Queen and Slim, they it's cutting to the heart of white supremacy and police brutality and all that. So while they're, they were just as righteous and in many ways they embraced their cause more, it's a little bit uh, uh, of a darker theme to gleefully enjoy, but I could see a movie that's totally different where they embrace their cause and start ac actively going after cops like uh, the one um, kid does, the kid who idolizes right. them. Mm -hmm. um, but he walks straight up to a cop and and, and after some dialogue shoots him. And I, find, I found that to be very disturbing, misguided, and the wrong message. What, what I, did I it thought mean? that was so fucked up and disappointing in terms of why would you do all this work to bring people to your side yes. and take it away. Like, why would you, I understand the complexity that you're trying to present in, in, in youth and how people see things, but it was, you just sent somebody down the wrong, the same wrong path mm -hmm. that you were just trying to, through this whole movie, overcome. You well, know, I, I found that to be. What does it say that the cop ridiculous. was black? I found that to, we don't do we really want to go into my thoughts on that sure, okay yeah. well well fuck it that's what we gonna do then i think they had to make that cop black because they want to send the message remember this is still hollywood uh, as, as much as the filmmakers have been going around saying this is our movie and our ideas and our this our that then either you're working for them in that way and you're not allowing yourself to um, say no <laughs> this is not a all lives matter kind of thing or blue lives matter type of thing this is a specific thing so the cop comes up to the kid the part we're talking about um, in the movie if you're listening if you haven't seen it is um, a kid he 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 idolizes Queen and Slim and, and as they go around the country they're they're finding that they have created this uh, synergy mm -hmm. and that people are like, yeah, somebody finally uh, fought back. They're you know inspiring what I'm saying? a social movement. Yeah. Right, right. So like everybody in their mind is like, why the fuck is George Zimmerman even alive? Like it's all these gangsters. How is he still walking around here, right? So in this moment, um, in this area that they're in, in this town, they're going through and there's a rally and they're gonna confront the police and the police, there is a confrontation. And this one kid who is idolizing and, and looking up to Queen and Slim, probably because the man's foot has been on their neck, right? Mm -hmm. He ends up shooting this cop who's like, hey brother, you know what I'm saying? He shows himself to be a black man, like look. Yeah. But the kid can't see past his police uniform yeah. to his skin and, and kills him, yeah. right? That was devastating and took away from the whole story. Well, I saw, for say, me, yeah, anyway. I'll say this, I was in the theater and in that exact moment, I hear this guy say, fuck it, and get up, and I look over and him and his uh, partner got up and walked out and they were, it was a, a black couple. And they got Let me tell you out. right now that you ruined the whole fucking movie with that mm -hmm. one moment. Mm -hmm. Like you literally, t I mean, <laughs> 
I, I, I was gonna go ahead and give a pass to you sitting in the parking lot and having the fat kid and the, and the man you hit on the ground calling his wife or his baby mama bitches and this and that. I was gonna let that go. Mm-hmm. I, <laughs> I was just kind of like, what? Where, so what are we saying here? Like, I understand there's nuances and there's different relationships with people. And I was going to let that go because there mm-hmm. is a world where, you know, people talk crazy <laughs> and, and they talk, talk like, like that, that to their yeah. family. Fine, whatever. What I could not do is continually. It was like the most downtrodden movie. If you if you really start to think about it. Right. It was one. They, they didn't win at any point they weren't evading capture it wasn't like the fugitive yes <laughs> right so there was no tommy lee coming after them and they had to evade capture and, and go into all these scenarios this is why i said i don't think it really knew what kind of movie it was trying to be it was trying to be a love story but i just think that that police confrontation was troublesome you put up all of these images of the strong you know a black couple who's about to fight against, you know, wrong. Cause and they're excellent despite their, themselves on what they say. They're both are examples of black excellence. How? Queen and Slim, I'm saying, are. No, Just, so I said how. Because uh, she's the upwardly mobile professional who's a really good lawyer. And they both have seem to have strong moral grounding. Uh, her and her values, him and his kind of family and ethics. So. Is that black excellence or is this that... I'm, I'm saying rearing. it's the kind of black excellence like well, where does that describes. Well, where does black excellence come from, right? That comes from an aspirational thing that who knows P. Diddy or this BT or who the fuck ever uh, decided that this is a, a goal. I'm not I'm OK yes. with I'm OK with reaching towards your best and always putting your best foot forward. But I am with Slim, I guess. Is he not queen? Queen <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> or slim, whoever That could he be is, interchangeable. Yeah. Right? For fun, he's queen. Right? So when he says, why do we always have to be excellent? Why can't, why can't I just want to work at the Costco and become manager? I don't even need to be district manager. Like, I could just be the manager of the Costco. Mm-hmm. Or you know what? I could be the freaking checker <laughs> and retire. Hey, Costco's a good... Good job. That was the point of that, right? And why do I need to, you know, get the Bentley? I don't need a Bentley to drive up in the Costco, right? That's what they mean by excellence is, you know, I need to be in Tahiti and taking pictures for the gram. No. Well, I wanted to get your thoughts. There were two scenes that are similar. Convenience store scene with Quentin Queen the Slim and the grocery store scene in Bonnie and Clyde. Yes. And I thought... Bonnie and Bonnie and Clyde when he kept afterwards it was very interesting that he kept saying I wasn't against you I wasn't against you I wasn't trying to hurt you mm-hmm. I he, thought that was very interesting he was incensed that the butcher I guess turned mm-hmm. violent on him after being robbed because they saw Bonnie at a certain point they saw a division of actual violence and and robbery their turning point is when he ends up shooting the cop off the car but prior to that they they never saw what they were doing as actual violence like you he might be pointing a gun at you but it's a very simple transaction here's the gun hand me the cash in queen and slim there's a similar scene where he flashes the gun and it's that simple and they both in both movies there's an interesting 
pushback. Like the butcher attacks them, they try to defend the money in Bonnie and Clyde. And in Queen and Slim, I like how the clerk he has no investment in that business. He's probably making minimum wage. So he's, like, here. he's like, hey, yeah, you can have the gas. Just let me hold the gun. Right. And there, um, that's just a, a great moment when he's po- he turns the gun on Slim and is pointing it at him. And he looks like a crazy-ass white guy who could very easily pull the trigger and probably be a hero in the community, too, for doing it. But he doesn't. He really just ha- wanted to handle it. Yeah, he was, he's probably with them as well, right? Like, I think we, in in this country in particular, we value the anti-hero over the hero a lot of times. And not to say that he even knew, he, he could have known who they were, who knows? Mm-hmm. That's up for debate. They were on the paper right there in the store. Right. So he so probably they, did. He, he could have totally, and I don't think he ever um, intended on doing anything he really did probably just like let me hold a gun because he is the shooter like i think that was like a prelude to say like you guys <laughs> want to ignore this threat right here yeah. but the people who are actually trying to defend themselves against harm you you want to criminalize that aspect of what's going on but bonnie and clyde when he the butcher is attacking him it showed to me like afterwards when he was so outraged by it, shows their age yeah. to me. It seemed like, oh, this is these are kids. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that was a moment in the movie where I was like, oh, he's so young. He doesn't understand that you took out of that man's mouth. You took out of his mm-hmm. family's mm-hmm. mouths. You're you are harming. And it could have been their reasoning for wanting to continue bank, you know, stick to banks. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like he it could have been an awakening. Clearly, the movie wasn't um, uh, aware of itself like that, but you know, it did show that their youth, and they were both young. Like she was a young lawyer. I think they probably couldn't have been more than twenty-five. Mm-hmm. I don't know yeah. what, what age did would you read them as? Yeah, like late twenties, I think. Late twenties. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they were very young, and if I needed to get on a plane to get out of the country right now, I don't think I could do it. What about you? Oh. I would love to. I can't do it. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm just saying, if you if you committed a crime, oh yeah, and you needed to get away, well, how would you? How do that? would you find? Well, and a lot of this, they kind of, the movie kind of had a cop out in that he was the trust God guy, so that the there was a lot of luck in their plan that she just happened to have pimp uncle or or uncle earl (laughs) and um uncle earl just happened to be an iraq vet with he was in iraq with flea and so flea just like happened to owe this debt and flea just happened to know a guy who knew a guy who had a plane so it all like lined up real good but the movie has a great cop out in that he was the trust god guy so kind of god was pulling the strings yeah god's always pulling the strings but in the in the same sense don't you think that God wouldn't have not got you in this situation? <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying. God not needed for nothing. someone to have a legacy to inspire, okay. I guess, in this sure. movie. But I wanted to return to the moment you were talking about when the kid shot the uh, junior shot the cop in the face, mm-hmm. and I looked at it a little differently than you. I didn't have a definitive reason. Oh, this is what the filmmaker was saying. I just, that to me was one of the moments where the movie felt a little more complex and it was just looking at cause and effect. And it did add this other layer of, you can't, it's not as simple as uh, police on black people because there are black 
officers and people in that line of work. And if it was just that moment alone, I'd probably be as kind of like offended, offended or taken out of the movie. But uh, what made that contextualize that a little more and made it a little more interesting to me and acceptable was when you see the other cop later, Langston. He opens the garage and sees them and has this weird, weird moment where he lets the deer free. And I noted that his name was uh, Langston. I thought that was interesting. Uh, but to me, that kind of said both sides of the law of when you, when you have a black man or women on that side of the law, they can be the lapdog to state violence and go along with it, or they can take the other road and be above their badge at certain points. Uh, well, this kind of goes back to the lens you look through, right? Mm -hmm. When it comes to police and being black, being pulled over, it's not, it's not hyperbole when, I, I, I wouldn't know how you felt getting pulled over by the cops. I don't know how that feels for I you. I squirt a little in my pants every time. Like, nice. Like I had the same feeling, like in the movie when you're watching it <laughs> and you feel that tension. I do feel that tension. Okay. But I've, I mean, I've had but cops you, point guns in my face and two and it's. Yeah. I think that it doesn't necessarily turn deadly, painfully so for, I mean, just casually knowing people who've gotten their ass beat by yeah. the cops. Like, do you know how friends who've gotten their ass beat by the cops? It's one of those things where it was enough for the person in your theater to be like, I'm not doing this anymore. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like that's how difficult it is. So I, I just think that for me to make that cop black in the first place, mm -hmm was troublesome and it didn't redeem itself by letting them go free with the next cop i think it definitely complicated the movie and maybe bit off more than it can chew right. but i will say i think the <laughs> filmmaker was trying to say that to a certain extent once it's an issue between black people and and police and once you put on that uniform you're maybe not representing your people as best you should. I'll say it like this. We talk about this, we've talked about this, probably it's a theme throughout um, all of our shows so far. And that is that you don't believe that films should be responsible for making people or inspiring people to do anything, right? The problem with that is the reason why people or cops feel the way that they do towards black people or anybody feels the way that they do mm -hmm. toward black people is because of a constant persistent propaganda against and, and instant criminality mm -hmm. of black people through media right starting with birth of a nation yes, yes. and and going on to today mm -hmm. so you can't say that it doesn't inspire or it doesn't mean anything that you know that there's this thing. It does. Because Bonnie and Clyde, let's just be clear, would never have made it an inch, right, outside of whatever ho-dunk town that they came from yeah. had they been freed slaves who decided to do the same thing. Yeah. Right? You see how the man <laughs> crept out from some obscurity mm -hmm. when they were sleeping in this abandoned house or this uh, repossessed house. Okay. Say it. <laughs> <laughs> you got this random black guy. Let's talk about that. I just want to get your take. 
I love that scene, the scene in question. Okay. The scene in question is they're squatted, they squatted in a house. They're out there practicing with their guns. And then a guy comes out from nowhere. He was the owner of this house before the bank repossessed it. And what happens? Some random ass <laughs> fucking field hand, black guy, comes out of nowhere. Like, where have you been this whole time? Like, were you just... He was with the family. No. Why was he way over there, though? I, He's like way in the West Field. Like, they're in a car mm -hmm. over here, right? Yeah. He wasn't in the car with them. He was, he was totally not in the car with Slightly him. off camera. He was... He was slightly off camera. Are you crazy? He was like <laughs> coming from like randomness. I took, I took it as this family used to have a farm. The farm failed. They lost their house and they moved on. And he was like a friend that they paid money and lived with them to... That's as fine. A field hand. But yeah. where the hell did he come from? They weren't. He was not in the car with the family. Yeah, but the the podunk old white guy also wasn't in the car. He was kind of like. Yeah, he was walking around the house. So are you saying okay, they both jumped keep out the, the car? Keep the wives and the kids in the car, and then the two fellows they, they walk split, along with the car. They split ways, yeah. and then yeah. he's coming yeah. back. Yeah, I just thought it was weird that he goes, "Hey, my." My my friend, come over here and <laughs> what's and the your guy, name, guy? <laughs> and the guy shoots and shoots as well, smiles, but he doesn't get any dialogue. So I took that as like, you could have given the guy some dialogue. <sighs> Every single time a black person popped up in this movie, they just came up out of obscurity. Remember at the end at when the they end, got yeah. shot up? Like, what are you guys doing? Why are you? Why well, they were onlookers? It was important to have onlookers. So, so they were like, so, you get you got this the good group of white boys. guys shoot this other no, no, group no. of white people. Then some black no, no, people no. came to be like, oh, you got the good here? old boys mm -hmm. with guns mm -hmm. who just shot up a whole bunch of white kids. <laughs> and you're going to come from <laughs> a mile down the road and walk up on this event. Yeah. Well, the cops that did not happen. The cops actually did a service um, out of respect to the black people in that they saw them coming and they said, "Oh, we better have this shootout before they get close to us because we oh, wouldn't right, want right, them right. to die in the crossfire." Sure, sure, friendly fire. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That was super weird and random. Okay, let's. <laughs> it was it was random, but Bonnie and Clyde was that moment we're speaking of. By the way, is the moment where Bonnie and Clyde turn and they start to articulate what they're doing of we're taking on the, the banks. They're somehow justifying their criminality. So it was a weird but important scene. Yeah. I wanted to ask you one other question about Officer Langston, though, when he lets them go. Oh, perfect, because I have something to say about that. Go ahead. He let them go because in his own way, he respected what they were doing. What if he hadn't have let them go, though? What if he said at that point, like, I have to take you in, and he peacefully arrested them, came around the corner with them in handcuffs? They wouldn't have died in that shootout at the end. Would Queen and Slim and their legacy have been better off for it if they went to jail? That's one way of looking at it, and could 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 have been an interesting change in what we thought would have happened, right? I think that he didn't do it for them. In my opinion, it, it looked like he did it to say, give a good middle finger to mm -hmm. the asshole cop partner of his that's sitting outside. Who just and, called him boy. And... Right. So it wasn't necessarily for them, but it, it they ended up getting the fruits of, the, yeah. <laughs> of his middle finger. I think the part of Quinn and Slim that we're missing is that there is no world where cop killers surrender and are peacefully brought to trial. 
right? Yeah, that doesn't happen. That's not going to happen. They're going to have been appeared to have been armed and dangerous and shot dead before, you know, before they even made it to the police car. Mm -hmm. it's not, they're not going to make it. If they do make it to the jail, they're dead there. <laughs> You're dead anywhere. And I think that is the point. Ultimately, we know that we're going towards their demise. Yeah. Yep. Sorry, and spoiler. They didn't make it. But that's kind of the tragedy, the alignment, if we're lining them up with Bonnie and Clyde, the tragic <laughs> love story that we had going here. It was fascinating that they decided that Clyde wasn't a lover boy. And it I'm no lover boy, Bonnie. <laughs> and I thought that was actually <laughs> interesting. They never talk about those kind of things. He was impotent. Like, yeah, right. Yeah. At a young age. Mm-hmm. And it could be from malnutrition. There's a lot of reasons I think impotency um, happens that men don't don't talk about. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but to have it in a, a film like this so early on. Especially they start with such horny energy. Like, right? like you're, Faye Dunaway, you're introduced to her just kind of stripping for herself. <laughs> Naked she's, she's and really, like, like really horny, horny. Looks out the window and is like, oh my God. Tips pressed handsome, up against me. A handsome boy, I'm horny now. And Like some random guy standing <laughs> at my car. <laughs> like what? I was so confused by that opening. Yeah. Not to mention that I was already bored to death by the damn intro credits. Both, all four characters have a slow burn romance. With Bonnie and Clyde, it's because Clyde is impotent. Um, seems like only robbery gets him, gives him a boner. Uh, with Queen and Slim, it's more like, they both have values, like Slim is religious, and he's also just a respectful guy, but also they don't really hit it off that much at first. But I will say, a, we do learn that Slim is in no way Impotent. Once they do come Ass together out. sexually, we see every pump. <laughs> right. Every. Like, and I, what did you feel about that being intercut with that rally? Like, did you find that to be? It was odd. <laughs> like, what are we talking about here? Like, you haven't done that the whole movie. Yeah. Like, why did you dilute? The importance of each of those moments. Yeah. By intercutting them. Well, they, that's they, a weird choice to me. They do say later that you know fucking makes children and uh, they're talking about birth and all that so I think it was saying like in a way protests are a fruit of their labor and here they are sexually realizing their union together at the same point the world is kind of realizing what the two of them coming together means but it also could have just been a functionally functional thing because that sex scene would have seemed really long if you were just watching it continuously it was really time. long without it yeah which I'm not mad at it at all. I just don't understand why would you build this up again and then take it away from me that I was rooting for them to get together and to come to some sort of place where in this all against all odds that you find this little moment of, of you know, pleasure mm -hmm. or happiness or togetherness or bonding. So why then diluted with something that was equally important, an important buildup. So you sat there and you said, you know, we're not gonna make either one of these things. Satisfying. Exactly. Yeah, the audience can't enjoy their love because they just witnessed a tragedy. What did you think about the acting? Bonnie and Clyde has some of the trappings of its time and Queen and Slim, in terms of the formula of it, some of the 
dialogue seemed a little on the nose and but right. the performance wise uh, i thought everyone was great i feel like i i just i'm gonna go with characters instead of performance if i look at a movie and i see performance um then it's probably not a good movie that's my general observation so when somebody says oh she acted her ass off or she did such a great job i'm like mm, uh, that means the movie wasn't that yeah. great right that's the director and me as a writer i go for a little bit of on the nose not so much as like you said <laughs> queen and slim happened to have but i did i appreciated what they were what it was trying to communicate because yeah. Whereas Bonnie and Clyde had a poem at the end. I think mm -hmm. the whole movie was poetic mm -hmm. with Queen and Slim, with Queen or Slim being the narrator of the entire thing. So it felt like that the female character, she was the guiding factor. I loved Slim's character and his masculinity. He taught her a lot more than she taught him in so many ways about how to treat him. You know, it's like you, you you let people know how you would prefer to be treated. And so for him to stand up and he was not overly, you know, had this over bravado kind of thing, mm -hmm. but he was very like, no, <laughs> you know, he was, he, he, he was a stand up person, which is why his weakness in some of the places was just kind of like inconsistent. She, I loved, the little touches like he learned to chew with his mouth closed quietly. That's some petty shit. Yeah. Yeah. And I and so that to me showed a lot about where they'd come as characters. What does that mean? So cuz you can learn to move close your mouth that you come a long way. Yeah, it, more so than more so than him saying like, you know, it it you get the goosebumps when he says like, "Oh, I want to see all of your scars." But when they're having that last meal together and you just notice subtly that he is now chewing quietly, it shows how they've come together. Kind of likewise mm -hmm. in Bonnie and Clyde, right? They, they do finally come together. Bonnie <laughs> finally gets what she wants and what she deserves from the beginning of the movie, right? When they finally make love and, oh, yeah. um, you know, she's seems to be satisfied and happy to die with him by his side yeah because of this poem yeah. that that she wrote and he you know finally i think it was an insecurity you know that kind of held him back a lot of the ways and like you said he got off on being the criminal and going in and you know bang bang shoot him up and chopping off toes he's like this true grit kind of guy yeah, right but he can't sexually satisfy her right because of that fear Here's where the two movies are a little bit different. They die, obviously, in similar ways, shot gruesomely by police. But when they're laying in bed, there's a moment when they're laying in bed towards the end of the movie with Bonnie and Clyde, where they're fantasizing about like, oh, what if all of our criminality was wiped away? And they're on the same page for a second. And, and then Clyde says, oh, it'd be so e easy to rob again and I and I would rob in a different state than I live in now and she sees that they're not in the same place like right, she, she's like she really was like I want to just be with you and not be constantly running from cops and he was fantasizing of oh I could be a I much better criminal about, right now. I would have done this I would have <laughs> thought this out so for <laughs> well I think that's funny you said that because it kind of goes to the fact where he was more so 
interested in being a criminal and she just happened to come along for the ride yeah like she was never supposed to be there it was him and his brother mostly that he was uh modeling himself Mm -hmm. after and it was going to be him and his bro you know and that was his going to be his life she just happened to be up for it yeah (laughs) and and came along okay so final thoughts which is the wokest and which is the wackest and we've qualified this before it can it can also mean best or worst well i'm gonna give um quentin slim the wokest for sure not for anything other than it tried (laughs) uh and i'm gonna because bonnie and clyde was whack in my opinion uh, Thelma and Louise would have probably been a much better mashup uh, than Bonnie and Clyde for the simple fact that it was a happenstance crime. So I'm going to give uh, Queen and Slim the wokest and Bonnie and Clyde the whack whack. I'm going to take the reverse of you and I'm going to say Bonnie and Clyde is the wokest, Queen and Slim is the wackest, and I'm just going to use the rubric of best and worst because I'm going to return to Bonnie and Clyde ultimately to me it's a more enjoyable movie um, that I would probably want to watch again Queen and Slim I enjoyed all the way through I like the movie uh, but it has that kind it has that kind of soapbox energy that I don't think I think many films have that don't have longevity and there's a lot of movies like this that I've seen in the past that I really appreciate and I like but they're a little too on the nose with the point they're making. Like, um, I'm thinking of John Q, uh, Battle in Seattle, movies like that where I'm like, yes, I, I, I totally agree with your message, but you're hitting me over the head with it. Wouldn't you like to see a Black Bonnie and Clyde for real? Oh yeah, yeah, and, and I'm sure if I think about it hard that probably some of the black exploitation movies have that kind of energy where it's fun killing, um, criminality, but I, this film had it chosen to go that way where they are, they are gleefully criminal. It, that could be a different movie that would work. Yeah, I think you're right in, in the fact that this world of police brutality and, um, is exhausting. Nobody needs a documentary again on the, if you're not gonna bring something new to the conversation as a writer, as a filmmaker, myself included, uh, then I don't think it's worth the conversation. Like, what are you bringing to this? When is something that heavy? Could we wrap on just talking a little bit for a minute about the production of the move of the, both these movies? Sure. To me, they both are similar editing wise. They seem to. I really appreciate Bonnie and Clyde when they kind of do ramp speed editing to make it seem like old films. And in Queen and Slim, they did a editing technique where they would have the visual of the scene with audio that seems like it's in the same conversation, but the people aren't speaking. And it was a really nice touch, I thought. Yeah, that's where it was poetic to me. Mm -hmm. I think that that was a very fascinating um, adding addition. You talked about cutting, so I thought that that weirdo, those weirdo cuts, which probably was like the French New Wave style that they had in Bonnie and Clyde, Mm -hmm. uh, where, you know, it's like moments of bang, bang, shoot him up, car chase, and then moments of the, you know, recap, retelling of of the bank robbery. Mm -hmm. Those are super odd and weird, but it was very stylistic, like New Wave. And then it just reminded me a lot of that scene we talked about in Clint and Slim, making love and then seeing the 
Yeah, the um, intercutting yeah, that between was, the two. You know, hey, those are choices. Those are editing choices, stylistic choices. I say, hey, everybody do your thing. But In terms of the the crew, Bonnie and Clyde, from what I could see, the above-the-line crew was all white people. Uh, Warren Beatty produced it. Yeah, I don't think we had a shot of even seeing. There was, I, I can guarantee there was no one um, that was not... <laughs> In 1967, you could forget it. So we hadn't even had the Civil Rights Act. So let's... No grips in there, you don't think? Or... How about no? But uh, on, on the contrast, um, you know, this was a... Queen and Slim was a quote-unquote, and I'm using it in the, the accurate term of mm -hmm. the people of color. I'm sorry, not people of color. Diverse. diverse. <laughs> the other word I hate more than anything. It was a very diverse crew of people it yeah. was, there was diversity so you have producer lena waith writer producer writer, writer. you have um director a female director she was a formerly a music video director right uh so um melina matsukas 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 yeah was that a greek or sounds something? greek yeah greek last name so a biracial lady and um and so and then you had daniel kaluuya a lot of brits in yeah. this movie which is always this is i know you love that i'm okay listen for this i don't think it, there's not a problem the issue comes without the acknowledgement and, mm -hmm. and understanding we're gonna go off topic now you you're gonna teach me something right danielle well, I just wanted to talk about an interesting hashtag that's popped up in Hollywood that um, I found fascinating, mostly because of the survey that came about. So recently on Twitter, which I know you've been a, a Twitterer mm -hmm. for quite a while. I remember when you were trying to get to a thousand followers. Oh, yeah. well, <laughs> brought in my brain on Twitter. yeah. <laughs> and I was not a big fan of Twitter, but I've over time become a. A more of a Twitterer than anything. Um, I don't tweet, I just stalk. But uh, hashtag the pay up Hollywood mm -hmm. um, came up. And I thought that was a very interesting conversation that's starting to happen about amongst assistants mm -hmm. in Hollywood, knowing that assistants are the gateway to anything actually they're, they're the gateway to getting your meetings set right. they're the gateway to um your next executives who are going to come after them but it was like a hazing process financially and emotionally as well as uh see what you can take how much mm -hmm. you can take mm -hmm. um that's happening and it's been happening forever yeah and it's a they call it pay your dues but the interesting part that came out of this is the fact that it showed, it pulled up the underbelly, not just with pay, but with who can afford, <laughs> you know, you could probably work it in and out and make more money than you can being an assistant in some places. And then we're talking big companies. Yeah. And I, I would probably venture to say that it's not necessarily just in Hollywood, that, that this is probably thematic in, in business and in corporate business mm -hmm. all over the place, that assistants, in any executive role, whether it's uh, Fortune 500 companies or whatever, are probably not paid a great amount, but they do all the work. They're working 60, 
hours plus. And what I think the reason this kind of exploitation is possible is that you have an industry where there's so many more people that want to be in it than there are slots. So the owners and the managers know we have this whole labor force that we can exploit. Absolutely. And it, it was, you know, the light was shed on this um, issue with um, a writer who, who's a WGA writer. She's actually on the show now, but I think she be, I believe she started out as an assistant. Her name is Liz Alper. And she started talking about how, I guess, a comment came up with her hashtag. And one of the assistants started talking about how bad it was. And, and uh, it inspired a survey. Mm -hmm. And you get to see that assistants are not only very white because that's who can afford to uh, do that because they need help from people who have money. Black people ain't got money. Black people's families don't have money, mm -hmm. unfortunately, as a rule. And y'all could be mad at me if you want to. Truth is a truth. But you, if you can't afford to be supported in some sort of way by somebody else, then you probably can't afford. And not only just financially supported, um, socially supported. Mm -hmm. Let's say you have a kid or let's say you have a dog. Right. You need to be able to have that sort of support at home. It's something that that the industry is going to start looking at, I think, kind of similar yeah. to what they did with internships. And that's why they the diversity programs just aren't enough, because what you're encountering here is that this is how white supremacy reproduces itself. You have generational wealth, generation after generation. And like you put it, it is the old money white people that are still living off the money made from slave times that can afford to say have their son or daughter chad be an assistant for five years and subsidize their life and then that person has the privilege um, the the wealth privilege the white privilege to have an assistant job and that will eventually lead to a uh, producer job, executive job, that sort of thing. Yeah. So it's you can't say that every you know every producer, every executive, every writer, every director started as an assistant, but yeah. uh, all, most of them that is one of the only paths into Hollywood is taking, as you put it, that hazing. Absolutely. I mean, you know, uh, in, in all transparency, I am an assistant. Um, to a wonderful boss, <laughs> but they are very supportive and I have seen the, the, the bad sides mm -hmm. of this business. I work lots of hours, but luckily it's on things that I love. Mm -hmm. So if it was something that I hated, which I know a lot of people do have to do such horrible grunt work, um, it would probably be un unbearable, you know, but it is the path to Number one, the information, yeah. right? So the amount of information that I know based on working in the position that I'm in is not immediately accessible to somebody who is an aspiring uh, writer or director, somebody who is interested in get, I know how to get to that place. Now, do I have time or energy to write <laughs> after a long days of work? Not, not most of the time, you know what I mean? So there's a give and take. Look it up. 
pay up Hollywood. They have um, some very interesting statistics that came out of that research. It's mm -hmm. a blog post by Liz Alper. Check it out and uh, let us know your thoughts. Yeah. And if you want to hire me to be an assistant and abuse me, I am a glutton for abuse. <laughs> he is actually. You probably would be a great assistant, wouldn't you? Oh, yeah. I'm a yes person. And I just, <laughs> I just spite and hate in the back of my head silently. Nice. That's, yeah. that's how it should be. That's how hate should happen. Yeah. Great. Can I bring you a book report, Danielle? Okay. Cool. I would love it. So I'm going to call this a book report. This was my pitch to be a uh, episode, but you are so averse to watching Ernest and Medea movies, I couldn't cajole you to do um, it. So. Sorry. I'm going to interrupt. I am averse to Medea movies. Okay. So hey, one day there are, my dream is that on this podcast, we are going to mano a mano every Ernest to every uh, Medea movie that we can. Yeah. But I, um, for our holiday here, we're going to go a bit long and I'm going to give you a report on Ernest Saves Christmas and a Medea uh, Christmas, which I got from the Pasadena Library. I right can't now. promise you I won't jump in on your book report, but go I ahead. I want you to. I want you to. <laughs> so um, the, to me, I'm a longtime Ernest P. Worrell lover. He's one of my favorite fictional characters. Jim Varney is one of my favorite actors. Medea, before prior to this, I'd only seen a diary of a black woman. And I'll say I had a always had a passing respect for Medea, knowing that at some point I need to deep dive and watch all the movies. Uh, I was not disappointed by Medea family, a Medea Christmas. But first, I will kind of just walk you through the Ernest movie. Okay, wait, can I stop you just real quick? I swear it's going to be short. Oh, yeah. I just want to make sure that I preface this by saying. I love Ernest, and I love Tyler Perry. Medea, you don't like has a special place in hell for me. Yeah. And 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 in all in all honesty, I have to stop and and also say that the only reason I don't care for this mm -hmm. is that I don't like comedy. That's so becoming there. more and more apparent to me. Yeah, but so there you go. I will say, uh, Medea, as much as I love the character, I have a great respect for Tyler Perry, the way he works. But Medea can't compare to Ernest in that Jim Varney, I think, is just a better actor, a more physical actor, and can embody so many more characters. Like you see in Absolutely. every Ernest movie, he, he's doing multi-characters, Astor Clement, Auntie Nelda, um, a snake uh, Hant Wrangler pops up in this movie. Um, but I'll get into why I think Medea still has an important place cinematically. Uh, but Ernest Saves Christmas, what, what Ernest and Medea both have in common is they're kind of s minor characters in their own story. Ernest is a conduit for, to help other people. Santa's coming to Florida to kind of find the next Santa Claus. And you might think that he's going to crown Ernest Santa Claus. But really, uh, Ernest is there to help him uh, coerce Joe Carruthers, a kid's TV show host character, to be the next Santa. And so the great thing, what I love about Ernest is he is his, what his name is for. Is he's an Ernest individual. So the first act of any Ernest movie is he does do things that could be interpreted as, as stupid. Like in the service of doing good, he'll do, like he almost commits vehicular manslaughter 10 times over in order to do good deeds, like to save a Christmas tree from the street or to get a guy to the airport on time. 
Would you characterize Ernest as like an all-in-one Three Stooges? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and because at varying points he he's not dumb like people say. He's actually has these great intellectual runs and wordplay and stuff. But the slapstick comedy is like on another level. Uh, but Santa and him immediately, uh, Santa get totally gets him, and they uh, immediately fall into this adventure together where Ernest is just doing anything he can to help Santa uh, corral Joe Carruthers. They even pick up a teen runaway. Her name is uh, Pamela, or as they also call her in the movie, Harmony Star. That's kind of creepy and porny, isn't it? If, if for anyone else, if it wasn't Ernest, it would be totally sus. Because <laughs> she like, okay. she's doing oh, some me, like, minor uh, petty theft and hops in the car and says, hey, let's get out of here. And she, uh, while Ernest is Santa's uh, ally sidekick, she kind of becomes Ernest's sidekick through the movie. He's just helping this teen run away. She crashes at his house with no questions asked. He cooks her pancakes. It's, yeah, that's really kind of creepy. It's you would think so on paper, but they got in the movie. It makes total sense, and they hmm. help each other along I the way. I don't think so. Uh, now, similarly, Medea, she the first act of this movie, you think she's an awful character because she's work. Um, her sister, Eileen, is it? So you're committed to calling him yeah. or her. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, you know, yeah, 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 Medea, yeah. the great tran transgender character. Um, uh, her sister Eileen gets her a job in a department store, and what's interesting here is uh, Medea is awful to every single customer. Mm. But this sets up for some reason the whole first act of this movie. Medea is wearing a Santa Claus suit, which is totally <laughs> unexplained. Yeah. Other than they wanted to have Medea in a Santa suit on the poster. When they made that damn thing from scratch, and they were going to use it. <laughs> but this, but Medea is awful to every customer in the store. But what this illustrates is Medea's character is Medea's all about fairness and righteousness and in that role of having to do customer service she can't do it because it's so false it's Here, all here's where I'm going to stop you because this is where I have to do the black translation black people have horrible customer service skills according to the world it's not true but that is the stereotype so what they're playing on is a is an active stereotype of poor customer service in, in black establishments or through black mm -hmm. employees. Go ahead. Perhaps, but her sister Eileen has the role down. And what's interesting about their characters- That's why I said it was a stereotype. In that customer service role, Eileen is perfect. She toes the company line, she's polite. But in the real world, she's cutting and rude and mean to her daughter, everyone in her life. Whereas Medea is the flip of that. In the real world, she's observant, thoughtful to those around her, notices things before anyone else does. And she's, throughout the movie, Medea is there to kind of navigate the conflict of others and make everyone uh, come to each other's side and be more empathetic. And that's what I appreciate about uh, Medea's character in this is that what they're dealing with is uh, Medea and Eileen go to Eileen's house in Alabama, mm -hmm. which is kind of like a reverse gentrification. Uh, Eileen's daughter hooks up with a white guy in college and they go back to live in his farm in Alabama. And so you get all these kind of uh, rednecks who are, are pissed at 
her presence there. She's the school teacher and she's teaching all these white kids. So you get this racist hick guy who doesn't like her telling him that his son's a genius. He just wants his son to be a farmhand. It's like, stop we always to, have to be excellent. Stop trying to uplift my son <laughs> and tell him he did good on a test. And so it's that kind of thing. Become, hold this hold this field. And so Eileen and Medea show up and um, Eileen, uh, Eileen's daughter, um, Kim, uh, tries to hide the fact that she's married to this white guy, Connor. And there just tells his mom that's a farmhand. Medea figures it out and things uh, gradually unravel and fall apart for them. Whereas Ernest has to help Santa corral this uh, Joe guy into believing he can be the new Santa Claus against the odds of like an evil corporate uh, movie company that wants instead to use Joe as their star. Uh, Medea has to help soothe the racists of this town who are racist against Eileen's daughter and they don't want Eileen's, uh, Eileen's daughter's husband to grow his super smart corn. And they're pissed that um, they have this jubilee going on in town. And um, uh, Kim got, Eileen's daughter Kim got a sponsor to save the jubilee, but that sponsor is the evil corporation that is cutting off the town's water. So Medea has to kind of push everyone to navigating these choppy waters and and get Eileen to accept Kim dating uh, or being married to a white guy because uh, she's adamant that her, her daughter shouldn't be married to a white guy. And so why? Because it, this is a great moment where she had told her daughter that a white man had killed her husband. Okay. But Medea goes, oh, child, you've been lying to her this whole time. Actually, uh, your daddy left with a white woman, and so your, your mother's hated white people ever since. So it comes out that Eileen has been lying oh, to... It's painful. Oh, painful. I haven't even mentioned Larry the Cable Guy. Larry the Cable no, Guy Larry. comes out in this movie, and <laughs> i got to say, he is the perfect foil to Medea. What I love about the Medea v. Ernest movies is Ernest movies kind of have our... exist in like a post-racial kind of universe you'd like to think. It you acts said, as. I didn't. I'm glad. Whereas Medea movies, race is a big thing, but Tyler Perry, you can tell, is kind of of that mentality where it's like, hey, we should talk about race, we should make fun of race, have have laughs over it, but at the end of the day, we should like be positive and try to move forward. We talked about Warren Beatty earlier. This movie made me think of his movie Bullworth, where in Bullworth he says, hey, we should just all fuck each other till we're all the same color. And Which just kind of happened, right? Tyler Perry to me kind of feels like that's his similar outlook is, hey, let's turn a page and move forward together. And that comes through in the scenes between Larry the Cable Guy and Tyler Perry, whereas they both are characters that want to... Tr characters. Want, they're caricatures like that constantly are making racial jokes, but you they are making pains to show they're not racist. Pointing out everyone's race and everyone's differences, but in the end they have a lot of love for each other and it's under the guise of like, oh, I'm just outrageous and I don't hold back. And that to me is kind of um, what the Medea character represents is her mouth is constantly running and she'll say the most out of bounds thing, but you know, her heart is good underneath it all. So this is why I have a problem, it's problematic for me, mm -hmm. which 
that's not the reason I didn't want to watch movies, but um, as you <laughs> weirdly stated, but the reason that I don't care for this kind of commentary mm-hmm. is because I don't just like you don't think that that movies should have the responsibility of I don't think comedies um, should have the nece- the responsibility of dealing with things such as race and, yeah. and shit like that. I, I grew up in the 80s watching movies. So a character who was in Bonnie and Clyde, uh, Gene Wilder, who was one of my favorite. He was mm-hmm. hilarious. His mashups with uh, Richard Pryor were legendary to me. And so I think I just grew up on a different sensibility of, mm-hmm. of comedy where it wasn't, it was overt. So like 48 hours, the theme was overt, oh. right? Um, you have stuff like that, or you have Brewster's Million or something like that, where it doesn't, the people are funny. Yeah. You're not, oh, this is, you know, it's kind of like two on the nose, like you talked about before, right? Yeah. I don't need you to tell me. That's why I do like Ernest movies, because it's funny just in general. It's silly. You know, this character, he has multiple characters. He's very talented in that way. And so, and Tyler Perry is very talented in what he Mm -hmm. does in terms of finding a niche audience because there is a huge audience for what he does. Yeah. Right. I just don't happen to be a part of that audience, you know, no disrespect anywhere. It's just not my cup of tea. But to me, uh, what you said in terms of the story itself, that is a huge undertaking for a comedy. The story is v- so convoluted and ridiculous. Right? And, like, and why would really you? it's really bizarre, too, especially. But I kind of appreciate that. It makes it kind of fun for me because it's not necessarily great storytelling, but it's interesting storytelling. Yeah. And see that, like, for me, funny was uh, Revenge of the Nerds. Like, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, funny was weird science. Like, give me a situation right. and be funny in telling that story. Not necessarily, I need these characters yeah. of, you know, this big giant black guy in a dress. Black men in dresses, definitely not my cup of tea. In in movies, like, it has happened throughout. I just, that's troublesome to me. Why are you doing this? Or yeah. if they're not, you know, like Ernest, yeah, he plays a grandma, but he plays so many different characters. It's a different statement that it makes Eddie Murphy playing all of the crumps or whatever is a different statement to me than and 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 I feel like Tyler Perry might have pigeonholed himself with Medea it made so much money that he for a popular character I don't mind so much Tyler Perry as Medea he may in his plays and whatnot I'm sure he played or wrote other characters it just so happens that this character popped and people love it and I honestly think it's a good vehicle for what he wants to say because Medea always seems to be a side character in her own story. And because I think whatever he learned in life from his mom and his grandma, what he puts out into the world comes through the whatever wisdom he got from them. So that's what, to me, what Medea represents is that that maternal wisdom he wants to put out there. And I'll just say I don't agree with Perry's thesis that we should try to post-racialize everything and kumbaya all each other. But I appreciate his outlook more than I agree with it. And it's, I think, a better outlook to have than people who just ignore race or never tend to think about the differences of people 
altogether. Much like I think Warren Beatty's Bullworth was a misguided movie, I appreciate that point of view more more so than just ignorant people. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, post-racial is not really sustainable. Mm-hmm. Um, but acknowledging people's differences is actually a lot more sustainable, but that is... That means acknowledgement means that you have to do something about yeah. it in, in a lot of cases, which is the part where people don't want to do that. Right. Yeah. Um, not necessarily. <laughs> but again, a very heavy topic for uh, such a light comedy to take on. Yeah. It would want to be a light comedy. But, you know, that to me, that's the appeal of Perry. He does not fit in a box. His movies are very sp- specific and specific audience absolutely and i had fun watching this movie to me it's an entertaining movie i would watch any tyler perry movie i want to compare the production qualities of these movies because that's where these movies are really similar to me is ernest had his ernest brain trust and jim varney always worked with uh uh cherry uh in the film starting from the commercials now this christmas was one of the ones that was a distributed through buena vista so it was made through disney tyler perry he's had like you alluded to he has his own studio he has his own operation which you can see in the end reel bloopers is quite interesting you can see um uh he calls cut to give uh direction and tells the actor um Anna Horsford, not to talk over his line. And you can see in other parts where they're using their scripts. So he's an auteur in the sense that he really is doing everything on the movie. Jim Varney, although I'll say he's a better actor, he wasn't a filmmaker. He was just an actor. Well, that goes to, can you do everything well? Can you serve all masters? I think that Tyler Perry is um, part miracle. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what he's done is, is so just ma- just magnificent in his studios and in his movies and doing mm-hmm. it his own way in his plays. I find him to be a force. I think he is absolutely yeah. uh, inspiring as a filmmaker to say that for the fact, the simple fact that people have said, oh, there's no audience for that. And he's continuously proven that wrong, like, to, to everybody, all the naysayers, mm-hmm. right? And he knows, he's very well aware that just like a fucking Avenging Force or, or, you know, some Jean-Claude Van Damme movies or what's the other guy with Steven Seagal movies mm-hmm. that they have a specific audience. Yeah. Like he has an audience. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of how I see Medea is as a Jean-Claude Van Damme. Yeah. Or as a, um, and so what he's done is special. Uh, and I don't take any of yeah. that part of it away because, man, who the hell else <laughs> is going to do you have a studio? Do you I, I, listen? That is uh, that's uh, phenomenal. And what they're doing is cool. Yeah, he's building um, an empire that's employ employing employing people. Yeah. And I just really I think I would like to see more movies like what cherry and varney used to do and like what tyler perry's doing where it's that specificity i appreciate where they have a niche and they work as like a band of a team that can make these very specific films that are seem like they're outside of the studio system Hmm. so i want to see the next generation's Ernest and the next generation's medea 
I think we have to take away some of these platforms in order to see that. Yeah. I don't think, I think a good bow on your conversation here would probably be the fact that I think that entertainment in general is the weirdest, there's, there's gonna be two industries left mm -hmm. and that's probably entertainment and robotics, right? Yeah. So anything that deals with automation and anything that deals with entertainment, like as, as many jobs that get automated, there's less people who are gonna be working, right? And so you have, or, or, or volunteering, right? Mm -hmm. So you kind of have a, a world that's coming about where the box stores go away, people aren't driving trucks anymore. And so now what do you do with that time? And, and arts are gonna come back full circle. And so hope. I, I would hope I mean, I hope it doesn't go the way of idiocracy where we're uh, chugging 7-Up and, um, you know, having more actor presidents. But I'm just saying that I think that you're probably, we are going to see more of those people come out um, as we tend to go towards more entertainment, not less. Not if Disney owns everything, but that's a whole other big conversation that we won't have right now. <laughs> I don't think that is going to get undone, but... Cool. Well, thank you for letting me give my book report on my experience watching uh, Ernest Saves Christmas and Amadea Christmas. I promise you down the line I'm going to push for uh, uh, Ernest Scared Stupid versus uh, Medea Boo. And I'm going to push back. And I'm going to push for uh, Medea Goes to Jail and Cage Ernest match. Goes to Jail. There's, a, there's so much more to unpack with both those characters, and we will in the future. I really would prefer not to. All right. So thank you so much for listening to the Black and White Movies podcast. I'm Jared, and I've been talking with Danielle. Danielle. And so you can follow us. You can tell us what movies you want to see. Oh, did I tell you that we did get a, a recommendation from a, a listener? No, tell us. Um, so we had a recommendation, uh, Showgirls versus Players Club. I would so be down for that. So, Want to do that on the next day? Yeah, so we'll, we will be doing Showgirls versus Players Club because um, me and my homies are tighter than a glove. And so, uh, yeah, so like... Oh, no, 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 no. Sorry, it's not, not that time yet. You didn't do the wokest and the wackest for... Oh, between Ernest and Medea? Well, I'm going to say Ernest is the wokest and Medea is the wackest. But they're both excellent, so... Cool. So go ahead and like us and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And you can always email us at blackandwhitemoviespodcast at gmail.com for if you have a recommendation for us. All so, right. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs>